0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. Talking about book 4, chapter 2 of War and Peace, we get a startling revelation in this chapter that Pierre's new wife has cheated on him with Dolokhov. Yeah, I don't know if that's the startling revelation. <laughs> I mean, that is it is a revelation, but it's not that startling. Wasn't there rumors before they got married that she was you know, like having some kind of an affair with her own brother. Um, but <laughs> isn't the startling revelation of this chapter that Bolkonsky, bolkonsky Bolkonsky has died? Um, okay. How do you think this has really affected Pierre, considering how hesitant he was towards the marriage to begin with? The elite's high society of Moscow celebrates Bagration's actions seemingly out of spite towards Kurzov. For losing the major battle, they can't even seem to wrap their heads around the fact that they lost a battle. How do you think this will evolve as the French forces continue to march towards their homes? Sorry, I accidentally punched my microphone a little bit there. Warren Kovofi says, "Uh, Of Bolkonsky, this is the final line of the chapter, Of Bolkonsky nothing was said, and only those who knew him closely regretted that he had died early, leaving his pregnant wife with his eccentric father. One of the classic Tolstoy um, final line bombshells. He'll save it for the very last line of the chapter and then drop a bombshell on you. And it will do a very nonchalant manner as well, just kind of casually mention. Oh, and by the way, um, one of the main characters is dead. Uh, it cannot be, says Warren Cavofi. Hopefully, this is just a case of a wild rumour. I know the French doctor seeing to Andre after Austerlitz didn't view his chances of surviving as likely, but it would be very unfortunate if Andre already met his end. Hopefully, this is just a trick on Tolstoy's part. These Kuragins just seem like a family of snakes. Ippolit and Anatole aren't depicted as being virtuous, so why should Helena be any different? All makes sense when you have their scheming father, Prince Vasily, leading the lot. As far as Pierre, he seems to be so naive and idealistic that I'm sure his new wife's deception, despite his own hesitations to marry her, shook him to his core. I think this is just another example of a young and pampered Pierre getting a taste of the real world. It seems to me that Russia is still so proud of their previous campaigns with Suvorov that they can't accept that Austerlitz didn't go their way. I think this is just a case of them saying, well... Suvorov led us to victory. It must be Kutuzov's fault. It just seems easier to celebrate past victories than to acknowledge recent defeats. And if we've learned anything of these wealthy socialites, it's that they really like to celebrate. Um, <laughs> it's, I don't know, it feels very believable that the rumour mill in town would sort of refuse to accept the reality of them having lost completely, you know? And even if they have, you know, if it wasn't a perfect victory, they're still trying to find someone to blame for their failures. And poor Kuduzov is for some reason copping the blame, although he's the only person who warned them that they wouldn't win the battle and that they should do something different instead of, you know, launching themselves into a battle. He said they shouldn't, they did it anyway, and they got their butts kicked. So maybe they should have listened to Kuduzov. Bickering Cube says, I don't think Andre should, would, sorry, I didn't think Andre would die yet, this chapter is so upsetting. Andre just dies off screen, like a minor character. The way everyone is talking about Kuduzov Pierre's wife cheated on him. This is the worst chapter. But okay, it's great that this chapter is mostly talking about the arrangements of some party. And then, oh yeah, Andre's dead. I get it. We don't really matter. <laughs> it is a very upsetting chapter. Um, when you put it all like that, I think the thing about Kuduzov is the most frustrating thing. that That he's just the scapegoat. Because he was the one who said, we're not likely to win this fight. And so they're blaming their loss on him. Although, at the same time, they're not really willing to even accept that they did lose. Um, And it's awful that Bagration doesn't set them straight. Well, maybe he does, but, you know, so far. Uh, And, yeah, the Andre dying off screen. um, Yeah, you get a a little bit of stuff like that happens in his book where, like we saw it with the dancing bear. Sorry, not the dancing bear. The bear that they danced with, that they strapped to the um, police officer. Um, It kind of was one of the funniest scenes in the book and it also happened um, in retrospect. Fragrant Squirrel 99 says this, Say it isn't so. I will hold on to a little hope, like some of you, who think maybe he's still alive. I mean, he's with the French, so maybe the Russians just have no idea. And poor Pierre, what is going to become of this poor young chap? Twisted Every Way says, Ah, juicy, we finally get some real gossip going on in these aristocratic families. Oh, Pierre, he knew something was up and shouldn't marry Helena. I guess we know Dolokhov survived the pond ice incident. He's such a scoundrel. If they stay married, then I'm sure Pierre will find his own affair partner too. I feel the Andrew News is just a fake-out. They left him behind with the villagers, and he was still alive the last we saw him, so I'm assuming he's convalescing with them. Seems weird they haven't gotten word yet, though. I think Andre will be back. Also another note that the Rostovs are spending unwisely. He seems to be flushed with cash because he remortgaged his properties. Now he's throwing a 250-person dinner, so that's probably not a good sign. Nikolai also has a suite of new clothes and shoes. Also poor Sonia. Alright. <clears throat> yeah, it's not a good sign when they remortgage their properties in order to throw a feast, a party. It doesn't really bode well. Chapter 3 goes like this, though. It's the Mord version. And uh, here we go. On that 3rd of March, all the rooms in the English club were filled with a hum of conversation like the hum of bees swarming in springtime. The members and guests of the club wandered hither and thither, sat, stood met and separated, some in uniform and some in evening dress, and a few here and there with powdered hair and in Russian caftans. Powdered footmen in livery with buckled shoes and smart stockings stood at every door, anxiously noting visitors every movement in order to offer their services. Most of these most of those present were elderly, respected men with broad, self confident faces, fat fingers and resolute gestures and voices, This class of guests and members sat in certain habitual places and met in certain habitual groups. A minority of those present were casual guests, chiefly young men, among whom were Denisov, Rostov and Dolokhov, who was now again an officer in the Semenov Regiment. The faces of these young people, especially those who were military men, bore that expression of condescending respect for their elders, which seems to say to the older generation, we are prepared to respect and honour you, but all the same, remember that the future belongs to us. Nesvitsky was there as an old member of the club, Pierre who, at his wife's command, had let his hair grow and abandoned his spectacles, went about the rooms fashionably dressed but looking sad and dull. Here, as elsewhere, he was surrounded by an atmosphere of subservience to his wealth. And being in the habit of lording it over these people, he treated them with absent-minded contempt. By his age, he should have belonged to the younger men, but by his wealth and connections, he belonged to the group of old and honoured guests. And so he went from one group to another. Some of the most important old men were the centre of groups which even strangers approached respectfully to hear the voices of of well-known men. The largest circles formed round Count Rostopchin, Valuev and Naishkin. Rostopchin was describing how the Russians had been overwhelmed by flying Austrians and had had to force their way through them with bayonets. Valuev was confidentially telling that Yuvorov had been sent from Petersburg to ascertain what Moscow was thinking about Austerlitz. In the third cycle, Naishkin was speaking of the meeting of the Austrian Council of War at which Suvorov crowed like a cock in reply to the nonsense talked by the Austrian generals Shinchin standing close by tried to make a joke saying that Kutuzov had evidently failed to learn from Suvorov even so simple a thing as the art of crowing like a cock but the elders remembers sorry but the elder members glanced severely at the wit making him feel that in that place and on that day it was improper to speak of so of Kutuzov Count Ilya Rostov, hurried, hurried, and preoccupied, went about in his soft boots between the dining and the drawing rooms, hastily greeting the important and unimportant, all of whom he knew, as if they were all equals. While his eyes occasionally sought out his fine, well-set-up young son, resting on him and wink, winking joyfully at him. Young Rostov stood at a window with Dolokhov, whose acquaintance he had lately made and highly valued. The old Count came up to them and pressed Dolokhov's hand. "'Please come and visit us. You know my brave boy, been together out there, both playing the hero. Ah, Vasily Ignatovich. How do you do, old fellow?' he said, turning to an old man who was passing. But before he had finished his greeting, there was a general stir and a footman who had run. In, announced with a frightened face, "'He's arrived!' Bells rang, the stewards rushed forward, and like rye shaken together in a shovel, the guests who had been scattered about in different rooms, came together and crowded in the large drawing-room by the door of the ballroom. Bagration appeared in the doorway of the anteroom without a hat or sword, which, in accord with the club custom, he had given up to the hall-porter. He had no lambskin cap on his head, nor had he a loaded whip over his shoulder, as when Rostov had seen him on the eve of the Battle of Ostolitz, but wore a tight new uniform with Russian and foreign orders, and the star of St. George on his left breast. Evidently, just before coming to the dinner, he had had his hair and whiskers trimmed, which changed his appearance for the worse. There was something naively festive in his air, which, in conjunction with his firm and virile features, gave him a rather comical expression. Bekleshev and Theodore Uvarov, who had arrived with him, paused at the doorway to allow him, as the guest of honour, to enter first. Bagration was embarrassed, not wishing to avail himself of their courtesy, and this caused some delay at the doors, but after all he did at last enter first. He walked shyly and awkwardly over the parquet floor of the reception room, not knowing what to do with his hands. He was more accustomed to walk over a ploughed field under fire, as he had done at the head of the cursed regiment at Shonga Oh, and he would have found that easier. The committee men met him at the first door, and expressing their delight at seeing such a highly honoured guest, took possession of him, as it were, without waiting for his reply, surrounded him and led him to the drawing-room. It was at first impossible to enter the drawing-room door for the crowd of members and guests jostling one another and trying to get a good look at Bagration over each other's shoulders, as if he were some rare animal. Count Ilya Rostov, laughing and repeating the words, Make way, dear boy, make way, make way, Pushed through the crowd more energetically than anyone, led the guests into the drawing room and seated them on the centre sofa. The big wigs, the most respected members of the club, beset the new arrivals. Count Ilya, again thrusting his way through the crowd, went out of the drawing room and reappeared a minute later with another committee man, carrying a large silver salver which he presented to Prince Bagration. On the Selva lay some verses composed and printed in the hero's honour. Bagration, on seeing the salver, glanced around in dismay, as though seeking help, but all eyes demanded that he should submit. Feeling himself in their power, he resolutely took the salver with both hands and looked sternly and reproachfully at the Count who had presented it to him. Someone obligingly took the dish from Bagration, or he would, it seemed, have held it till evening and have gone in to dinner with it and drew his attention to the verses. "'Well, I will read them,' Bagration seemed to say. And, fixing his weary eyes on the paper, began to read them with a fixed and serious expression. But the author himself took the verses and began reading them aloud. Bagration bowed his head and listened. "'Bring glory, then, to Alexander's reign, and on the throne our Titus shield, a dreaded foe, be thou kind-hearted as a man, a Ripheus at home, a Caesar in the field.' Even even fortunate Napoleon knows by experience now Bagration and dare not Herculean Russians trouble, but before he had finished reading, a stentorian major-domo announced that dinner was ready. The door opened, and from the dining-room came the resounding strains of the polonaise conquests joyfully thunder wake and triumph elegant Russians now. And Count Rostov, glancing angrily at the author who went on reading his verses, bowed to Bagration, everyone rose, feeling that dinner was more important than verses, and Bagration, again preceding all the rest, went in to dinner. He was seated in the place of honour between two Alexanders, Bekleshev and Naryushkin, which was a significant allusion to the name of the Sovereign. Three hundred persons took their seats in the dining-room according to their rank and importance, the more important nearer to the honoured guest, as naturally as water flows deepest where the land lies lowest. Just before dinner, Count Ilya Rostov presented his son to Bagration, who recognised him and said a few words to him, disjointed and awkward, as were all the words he spoke that day, and Count Ilya looked joyfully and proudly around while Bagration spoke to his son. Nicholas Rostov, with Denisov and his new acquaintance Dolikov, sat almost at the middle of the table. Facing them sat Pierre, beside Prince Nes- besides Prince Nesvitsky. Count Ilya Rostov, with the other... Members of the committee sat facing Bagration and, as the very personification of Moscow hospitality, did the honours to the prince. His efforts had not been in vain. The dinner, both the Lenten and the other fare, was splendid, yet he could not feel quite at ease till the end of the meal. He winked at the butler, whispered directions to the footman, and awaited each expected dish with some anxiety. Everything was excellent. With the second course, a gigantic stale at sight of which Ilya Rostov blushed with self-conscious pleasure, the footman began popping corks and filling the champagne glasses. After the fish, which made a certain sensation, the count exchanged glances with the other committee men. "'There will be many toasts. It's time, will t- time to begin,' he whispered, and taking up his glass he rose. All were silent, waiting for what he would say. "'To the health of our sovereign, the Emperor!' He cried, and at the same moment, his kindly eyes grew moist with tears of joy and enthusiasm. The band immediately struck up Conquest's joyful thunder waken. All rose and cried hurrah. Bagration also rose and shouted hurrah, in exactly the same tone of voice in which he had shouted it on the field at Shongriburn. Young Rostov's ecstatic voice could be heard above the three hundred others. He nearly wept. To the health of our sovereign, the emperor, he roared hurrah, and emptying his glass at one gulp... He dashed it to the floor. Many followed his example, and the loud shouting continued for a long time. When the voices subsided, the footmen cleared away the broken glass, and everybody sat down again, smiling at the noise they had made, and exchanging remarks. The old count rose once more, glanced at a note lying beside his plate, and proposed a toast to the health of the hero of our yet last campaign, Prince Peter Ivanovich Bagration. And again his blue eyes grew moist. "'Hurrah!' cried the three hundred voices again, "'but instead of the band, a choir began singing, "'a cantata composed by Paul Ivanovich Kutuzov. "'Russians over all barriers on. "'Courage conquest guarantees. "'Have we not, Bagration, he brings foemen to their knees,' etc. "'As soon as the singing was over,' Another and another toast was proposed, and Count Ilya Rostov became more and more moved. More glass was smashed, and the shouting grew louder. They drank to Bekleshev, Naishkin, Yuvarov, Dolgorokov, Apraksin, Valuev to the committee, to all the club members and to all the club guests, and finally to Count Ilya Rostov separately as the organiser of the banquet. At that toast, the Count, took out his handkerchief and covering his face, wept outright. Alright, there we go. There's chapter three. The feast is about to begin. Alright everybody, have your say about that. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.